Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. Hi, everybody. I'm in the process of making a new analysis video on Arnold Schoenberg. And before I post that video, I wanted to do a shorter one that would just sort of introduce the, the figure of Schoenberg and try to explain a little bit how he is situated historically and, and sort of what is unique about this composer. Because I think that among the major composers, he's probably the least understood. And even today, there's only a small handful of his works that are played with any regularity. And a lot of his most major and significant creations are actually not heard all that often in concert. So here's a few thoughts about Schoenberg. These are completely uh, unscripted and extemporaneous. I think one of the things that makes him difficult and perhaps uh, hard to understand is that he's full of contradictions. So the first thing about Schoenberg is that he is simultaneously a conservative and a radical. So what does that mean exactly? Well, he's, he's a conservative in the sense that he had a very acute sense of, of history, of musical history, and also of his place within it. And he was somebody who was very, very concerned with preserving the what he saw as the, as the great tradition of sort of uh, Central European uh, Germanic music. Um, and he, this is a very interesting thing because he's actually often viewed as a kind of a musical extremist or terrorist or revolutionary. And in fact, what he was most concerned with throughout his entire career was assuring the continuity and the, the continuation of this great tradition. He's a... He's a, he's a radical, though, in the sense that he understood intuitively that in order for traditions to be continued, you need to innovate within them. In other words, if you simply reproduce mechanically the same ideas over and over and over again, then your tradition will become completely hollowed out and stale and, and lose its meaning. It'll be just sort of ridden with cliches. And he also recognized that a, an artist, an authentic artist, needs to express something that is completely theirs and that is unique. And that stems from a real, genuine feeling and inner compulsion. In that sense, Schoenberg is continuing not only the project of Romanticism, but also the sort of the, the, the Renaissance idea of the artist, in which you, you have to be an individual who is uh, in, involved in original creation. In other words, you're doing something that is unique and that hasn't been done before. And this is something that we almost completely take for granted these days as being sort of one of the axiomatic qualities of being an artist, but it wasn't always the case. If you look at pre-Renaissance art, for example, the artist was more of an artisan than an individual expressing an individual point of view. So there's a few other things about Schoenberg that are contradictory. So he is very well known as being sort of the, the pioneering composer of atonality. In other words, a composer who refused for the first time in history to write music according to a key signature and wrote music in which any dissonance that you could imagine would be allowed. There would be no longer any grammar that would dictate the ways in which dissonances could appear and would have to be prepared and resolved. This was actually a relatively new thing to do, but it wasn't completely new because there were composers before him who were writing harmonically adventurous music in which there may have been a key signature, but the signature 
may have also been completely irrelevant at that point. So an obvious example is Scriabin, whose music is very chromatic and very harmonically complex and often makes very little reference to any kind of a key center, or it, it may do so, but only only in passing. So when Schoenberg was in the process of writing Pierre Lunaire, which is certainly one of his best-known works, it's a wonderful piece, incidentally, that I, I think everybody should listen to at least once, actually at least twice, no, at least five times. And while he was writing this piece, it's 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 quite a, a revolutionary piece. You could argue, actually, that Pierre Lunaire, in a certain sense, is sort of he, he kind of invented new music, or he kind of invented contemporary music with that piece. Um, even today, when you write for a sort of a small mixed chamber ensemble with maybe two or three wind instruments, a piano, and a couple of strings, that's typically referred to as a Pierrot ensemble. But harmonically, it's also very adventurous. It's a piece written completely without a key signature. And at the same time that he was writing Pierrot Lunaire, he was in the process of writing an extremely thorough and actually very conservative book on tonal harmony. This is one of the interesting things about Schoenberg, is that he was actually obsessed with tonality throughout his entire life, just as much so at the end of his life, possibly even more, than at the beginning. And it's hard to think of another composer from this period who knew as much about tonality and was as well-versed in its most sort of arcane recesses as Schoenberg was. The book he wrote on harmony is extremely interesting. It's almost completely useless pedagogically because it's full of extremely uh, verbose tangents. The, the student of Schoenberg, and the sort of the person who is interested in, in his creative personality, will certainly find the book fascinating. But if you're simply trying to learn how to join a few chords together or how to write a, a cadence in G major or whatever, then it's probably not the best book for you. Uh, the book actually tells you a lot more about Schoenberg in many respects than it actually tells you about tonality. Although uh, everyone, I think, who's interested in tonality and who's trying to learn about tonality would, would profit from reading it. But the point is, it's a book in which it, it's sort of as though uh, someone from Mars was looking at tonality sort of uh, from the perspective of this is, a, this, is a, this is an interesting musical phenomenon, like, trying to understand it as though it weren't acquired knowledge, but as though it were something that you actually really need to needed to look at squarely and sort of try to understand based on first principles thinking. Um, and that's actually a very interesting way to look at tonality. So it's it's a it's just a peculiar historical fact that at the same time that he's writing this music that is you know considered to be completely revolutionary and disruptive and and forever changing the way people conceive of music and so on, he's writing this actually very conservative book in which he's sort of imploring the student to make sure that they understand tonality properly. Again, it has to be pointed out that there, there were other composers writing music that, in its way, was similarly revolutionary. So uh, I mentioned Scriabin earlier. Uh, there's also Stravinsky, certainly, whose earlier works are, are quite adventurous harmonically. So we haven't quite gotten to the heart of what makes his music so particularly unsettling for a lot of people. So th there's a few things. So one of them is, is Schoenberg was really a, a tinkerer. He was somebody who was sort of obsessed with how things work and always trying to improve them, much in the same sense that, you know, that you might think of somebody who's like obsessed with how a stapler works and they might think, well, maybe it's possible to improve upon the design of a stapler. And, uh, and so he was somebody who was really a first principles type of thinker. He wasn't interested in received knowledge. He really wanted to understand how things worked. And he had absolutely no hesitation about radically rethinking them in order to try to improve them. And that's actually very characteristic of highly creative and individual thinkers. So that's one thing. Um, and that actually relates to the fact that in 
classical music generally, I mean, one of the things that makes a Mozart piece, for example, or a Haydn piece, relatively familiar sounding before you've even really listened to the whole piece, is that those sort of classical era pieces are, are based on a couple of things. Like they're based on on genres and patterns and particular approaches to form, particular ways of, of structuring a musical discourse. But they're also based on large amounts of uh, pre-existing material. So an, an example of that would be the Alberti bass in Mozart. which is just a repeating pattern that you have in the left hand. It's an accompaniment figure. And then on top of that, you can have a, a, a melodic idea. And there are lots of things like that in, in Mozart and Haydn, which is absolutely not to diminish in any way the singularity of their achievement, but it's simply to point out that there are large blocks of material in those pieces that already existed and that the composer didn't have to invent. There's lots of patterns, there's lots of predictability, there's lots of material that's already familiar even before you've heard it. And what Schoenberg does is he does away with that to some extent. He, there, there's no prefabricated material in his music at all, particularly in the in the sort of mid-period atonal pieces. And what that means is the music is mercurial. It's it's always changing. There's almost no repetition. And the concept of of pattern recognition, I think, is is challenging for people when they listen to that music. So what I think is actually a, a source of a great deal of misunderstanding with regards to Schoenberg, is a lot of people feel that what's difficult about his music is the harmony. And I think that's absolutely not true. There are other composers who were also harmonically adventurous, whose music perhaps doesn't encounter the same degree of resistance as Schoenberg's has. What is really disturbing about it, I think, for some listeners anyway, is the apparent absence of repetition, the absence of symmetrical structures, and and most notably also of, of cadence. So in classical music, there is a there's a, um, a grammar of cadence, in other words, that, that, that signals to you that this phrase is about to come to a close. It's like punctuation in writing. And in Schoenberg's music, especially in the sort of uh, the atonal pieces, you don't really have that. Instead of that, you have this sort of focus on the, the intense expressive power of the individual moment. That seems to be disturbing for people, but it's absolutely fundamental to the way he thought. It's hard to think of any music that's more intensely individual and more intensely expressive than Schoenberg's. And that gives it its peculiar power and intensity, but it also makes it challenging. However, a lot of these difficulties, on the second listening, on the third listening, those challenges will very often just fade away, and you'll be swept along in the intense color, the expressivity, just the, the sheer expressive power of the music, I think, will take over. If the first listening is tricky, you need to hear it a second time, you need to hear it a third time, and then very often it will sort of reveal itself in its extraordinary power. There's a few key works that I would recommend everyone listen to. So one of them is certainly Pierre Lunaire and I'm going to be making a video about that piece. I would also recommend that uh, that everybody listen to the, the three pieces for piano, Opus 11, wonderful pieces. It's a very strange work because there are plenty of, of ghosts and reminiscences of tonality in that piece. It's often described as one of the earliest instances of a tonality, of an absence of a key signature in, in Schoenberg's music. But, I mean, the tonal functions are there, they're just sort of atomized to a certain extent, but they're there nevertheless. And some people, some analysts have actually tried to interpret those pieces under the lens of tonality, even though that's not how they're traditionally thought of. It's like it's like a, a language that is in a, in a state of advanced decomposition in a peculiar way. 
And that has a certain unique beauty to it. And you can also sense when you're listening to it that something new is about to be born. Something new is about to uh, arise and perhaps already is happening in those pieces. So just a, a remarkable moment in music history. The five pieces for orchestra, which are just, they're so crazy. They're so intense. They're so inventive. The range of orchestral colors is unparalleled. I mean, there's, there's a degree of in- inventivity in those pieces that is shocking even today, 100 years later. I mean, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to have done. Everyone should listen to those pieces. They're, they're disconcerting. They're noisy. Emotionally, they're situated on a, on a kind of expressive register of in, intense catastrophe. And that's also related, you know, specifically to the fact that Schoenberg was, especially in this period, he was really fundamentally an, an expressionist artist. And so the, the, the expressionist style in music is also something that is particularly intense. And that can be disconcerting for some people because it's it's not relaxing. It grabs you by the throat. But those are also the things that, that make it so uniquely powerful. I would also recommend that everyone listen to the Gourlider. So the Gourlider is a huge uh, orchestral uh, oratorio featuring soloists, gigantic orchestra, choruses. Uh, it's, it's just a, an amazing piece. And it's written in this sort of late romantic style that uh, is just overwhelmingly beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece. Also, the, uh, the Violin Concerto, which is one of the serial pieces. We haven't really talked a lot about serialism, but, uh, but this was a method that Schoenberg sort of invented around 1921. And the Violin Concerto, I think, is one of the great jewels of this style. There you have it, some uh, sort of uh, spontaneous remarks on Schoenberg. I hope this interests you enough to go out and listen to some of his pieces, and I will see you very soon with my video on Pierre Lunaire.